is Truth Talks. Welcome back, everyone, to the Truth Talks podcast. I'm your host, Buddy Boone. Uh, thank you for joining us again today. We are doing this in a completely different format than normal. Uh, Matt is actually uh, joining me here. And uh, first of all, Matt, how you doing today? I'm doing good. So you can tell his voice sounds a little different. He did not swallow a radio. He's actually speaking to me uh, uh, from home, and I'm in my garage, which is my uh, my, my office right now during uh, the whole coronavirus uh, epidemic. And I am in the garage talking to him through uh, through the computer, basically, and we are recording the podcast that way. So it's going to be a little different. It's going to sound a little different, but hopefully everything sounds good for you all. Now, uh, Matt, we are going to do a few questions, and these questions really... Uh, some of them come from the, actually, yeah. So I have a special guest that's going to ask you a question as well. And, uh, I'll have that special guest come in, uh, uh, in a little bit. They're in the green room right now, AKA my living room. Um, (laughs) so my first question is going back to the sermon that you did, uh, on good Friday. Um, and this, uh, was a, this sermon you can find, uh, on YouTube and also on the, uh, Bellcroft Bible Church uh, podcast, and it's from Good Friday, which was the 10th of April. And this question really comes, here's here's why I'm asking this question. One of the things that I always, you know, I, I think I'm annoyed with more than anything is more with the contemporary church. They talk a lot about the love of God, the love of God, the love of God. And not saying that I was annoyed with the sermon on Good Friday, but you talked about God's love a whole lot. Um, almost, can you almost the whole almost yeah the whole sermon the whole sermon and so it, I'm I'm a little conflicted. So I just need a little bit of I guess uh, I guess just putting putting a different perspective on the love of God and how that you know how that we should talk about it, but. What is, is there a limit that we shouldn't talk about the love of God or, you know, are we to balance it with his love and his wrath? Like, how does that work? Where does it, where does that line go where it's, it it literally gets to the point where we are talking about the love of God way too much and we need to balance that with uh, the wrath of God? Yeah. You understand the question? I know exactly what you're saying. And, um, I don't think you can talk about the love of God too much mm-hmm. at all. Uh, I think the problem isn't that people are talking about it too much. I think that's impossible. Mm-hmm. The problem is people aren't talking about it correctly. Gotcha. That's the issue. Mm-hmm. Right? So the issue isn't talking about the love of God. You can't talk about that enough. Mm-hmm. That is what drives everything. It is uh, God does everything that he does for his glory, and it's all driven by love. Uh, Mm -hmm. love for his own glory, love for his son and love for his people and even love for the lost. So um, he says that, not me. Scripture is really clear about that over and over and over again. That's uh, Romans 5, 8. God demonstrates his love toward us. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, right? And uh, Deuteronomy 7, what what, uh, the Lord did when he chose Israel was done out of love. Mm-hmm. And so you can go all the way back to the choosing of Israel, which essentially is going all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, which is the choosing of Abraham, because mm-hmm. that is Israel. Mm-hmm. And then you can take it all the way back to uh, Genesis. 
chapter 3, after the fall of man, God uh, should have and could have rightfully condemned Adam and Eve right there in that moment. Um, when he promised them that if you eat of the tree that I've forbidden you to, you will surely die. And they did by way of physical death, but he didn't need to make a covering for them, which is a veiled expression of make atonement for them, cover their sins Mm -hmm. and and even remove that guilt from them that they saw their nakedness and all of that. That was all done out of love for them. And, uh, and so, um, you can take it even further back than that. Ephesians chapter one says in love, we were predestined to be elect in Christ. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, again, you can't, you can't talk enough about the love of God because that is really the, the motivation and the drive uh, for uh, what God does for his, for his own. And even, even for uh, the unredeemed, he has a benevolent love and kindness where he sends the rain on the just and the unjust. And uh, Jesus commanded in the in the um, Sermon on the Mount that you must be as your heavenly Father is, mm-hmm. and uh, you must uh, love those who hate you and pray for those who persecute you, following in the footsteps of uh, of your uh, of your heavenly Father. So, so the issue isn't talking about the love of God too much. The issue is talking about it incorrectly, okay. and that is a love that's devoid of wrath a love that's devoid of judgment, a love that's devoid of holiness and the, and, and the demand for righteousness. Mm-hmm. That's what the modern church talks of. It talks of a God who's only love. And uh, that's, that's not talking about love too much. That's, talking, that's, a, that's an unbiblical definition of love, and it's an unbiblical definition or, or an inaccurate or maybe even at best an incomplete understanding of god mm-hmm. so uh so yeah so i don't think the issue is talking about it too much i think the issue is not talking about it correctly mm-hmm. and uh, when you look to the cross what you see in the cross without reservation is the full character of god you see his holiness and his righteousness and his judgment while at the same time you see his mercy his grace and his kindness all at the same time Mm -hmm. his holiness to judge his son who was sinless but he did it because as romans 3 uh 3 says so clearly 23 to 28 he must be just and the justifier Mm -hmm. and therefore he cannot sweep sin under the carpet of his own character he has to judge it because that's what a holy judge does and so he did as uh, isaiah 53 6 says it was the will of the father to crush the son Mm -hmm. he laid he laid the iniquity of us all on him, and uh, that's what the Father did, and that displays his holy justice like no other event in history. Mm-hmm. Yet at the same time, it displays his love for his own, that he would kill his own son mm-hmm. to redeem a people for himself. There is no love like that. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, so you have to understand it in that context, but uh, you can't talk about it too much. You just mm-hmm. have to talk about it rightfully. Right. You have to talk about it clearly. And um, and so, yeah, and that's why the cross is the greatest display of love. So if you don't talk about love when you talk about the cross, you're not talking about the cross correctly. Because mm-hmm. it was Paul himself that said, God demonstrates his love toward us. And while we were yet sinners, 
Christ died. What's he talking about? The cross. Right. What does Paul mean when he said it is the love of God that compels me or the love of Christ that compels me? Second Corinthians uh, 5, 14. He's talking about the cross. It's the cross where you see the love of God and the love of Christ like like there is no other. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so, yes, you have to talk about sin. You have to talk about judgment. You have to talk about holiness. You have to talk about wrath. But you can't talk about those devoid of love. If you do, then uh, then you've got a, a conflicted gospel at best and a um, heretical gospel at times. Mm-hmm. So that's the issue. The issue is 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 um, not talking about the love correctly, not talking about it too much. You can't talk about it too much. As you remember, were... Romans Romans uh, two four, Paul said, "It is the kindness." Mm-hmm. of God that leads man to repentance mm-hmm. not the wrath not the wrath not the judgment mm-hmm. it's the kindness of God but you can't understand that kindness until you understand wrath deserved that's mm-hmm. why you have to tell people and show them that they're sinners and that they're deserving of wrath because as the holy spirit because you can't you can't trick them by that you can't talk them into that they won't listen they're blind to it but the Holy Spirit uses the truth. He'll open their eyes. And when they see they're, they're rightfully deserving of judgment, and then you come in and you show them, but God has given them love, that's what breaks the heart. And that's what I, in the sermon on Good Friday, I literally said that, right? That's what moves you. Mm-hmm. When you see you deserve wrath, you see you deserve judgment, but you've received mercy as Titus 2, as Titus 3, 5 says, it's not by the works of righteousness that we have done, but by God's mercy that he saved us. What, what is he talking about? His love. Right. His love to withhold his wrath. Mm-hmm. That's, that's what opens the eyes of sinners, and, and the Holy Spirit uses to open the eyes of sinners. That's what Paul means when he says it is the kindness of God, the love of God. And so you've got to, you've got to hold both of them correctly and in the right tension. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. I, as you were talking, I thought of, uh, or I was reminded of a an, an illustration that I heard from uh, Vody Bakum. Uh, he was saying that <laughs> he's like, you know, there's no doubt that a, a, a mom would love their child, you know, so they, they nurture their child, they nurse that child, they care for that child. Now, if that child is running towards the street, it's not going to be, oh, I love you so much. Please don't walk towards the street. It's going to be, stop. It's going to sound violent. It's going to be yeah. a, a love that just sounds violent. And I was like, oh, well, yeah, that's the that's the love. I mean, it, it, it well, the, the a proper way of speaking about it. Well, and here's, but here's where it gets anti-man-centered love, right? So anti-worldly love, that's the problem. So the issue isn't, again, I can't say this loud enough or clear enough. And I hope it's clear, but the issue with the modern church is not that they talk about God's love; it's mm-hmm. that they're not talking about God's love. <laughs> they're right. talking about man-centered love. Gotcha. They're talking about emotions and feelings mm-hmm. and ooey gooey. God loves me, and it's like, no, no, you're missing it t- totally. Because here's the issue, right? This is where Romans five is so helpful, mm-hmm. where Paul says, "For a good man, right? Scarcely somebody might die." might kill themselves, might lay their life down for a good man. Mm-hmm. You might be able to search and find like a soldier on the battlefield, jump on the grenade for his platoon buddies. And, right. you know, that happens. 
but that's not often, but it does happen, mm-hmm. right? And But Paul's point is, but who's going to die for a, a wicked person? Who's going to kill themselves or kill their own son on behalf of, so, of somebody who's their enemy? No one except God. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the love of God. Right. Where he comes down and sends his son to die for those who killed his son. Now we're getting somewhere. Hmm. Now we're getting to a love that's unlike anything man has ever known. And that's what First John 4 says, right? This is love. That, and Jesus Christ himself said that in John 15. And So that's the kind of love that we know nothing about. And that's why John says it's not that we loved him, but that he first loved us. We don't even know this love until we grow in it. And uh, but again, you can't understand the love of God without the wrath of God, and that wrath is against against sin, right? Mm-hmm. Against wickedness, against sin and sinners, uh, because they are deserving of that, and his because they've offended his holiness, and it's all about his glory. And yeah. so you you got to explain all of that, and and uh, and yet the problem, and this is good. I'm glad because most of our listeners will be of a more of a reformed stripe of some of mm-hmm. some of some vintage whether they use that language or not they right. will be yeah. or else they would, they're probably not listening and so the problem with the reformed camp or the reformed theologian or the reformed christian is that they tend to um, be imbalanced they tend to focus on the wrath and the judgment of god and not the love of god the problem with the Arminian Christian, who would be the other camp, the ones who are who are more free will, more man chooses his way versus God elects, they t- they focus more on the love of God and not the wrath of God. And the issue is, it's not an either or; it's both and, mm-hmm. and you've got to hold them both together. And that has always been the issue, and that's why faithful preachers. Uh, it was said of Martin Lloyd-Jones that that when you listened to him preach, you had a hard time, uh, not always, because a text will drive you one way or the other, but in his preaching overall, you had a hard time telling whether Martin Lloyd-Jones was a Calvinist or an Arminian <laughs> because he preached so balanced. Right. And that's the way it should be because Scripture you know, calls all men to believe, and you preach with a passion that the gospel is a universal call for all and all who will come to God will in no wise, he will in no wise cast out. And, mm-hmm. and that's the way you should faithfully preach it. And versus you get passages that talk about election. And there is a clearly a, a, a undeniable, uh, uh, an undeniable particular redemption where there is specific group of people for which Christ loves and dies for. And mm-hmm. yet that doesn't deny the universal nature of the gospel call and even and even uh, uh, God's plan and showing his atoning love for the world uh, even though he has a specific group and so so you've got to preach 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 both of both of the clarity because that's what the Bible teaches mm-hmm. but the problem is because most people have man have a man derived theological system and not a biblically derived theological system they focus on one or the other yeah. And I have fought my entire life imperfectly and still even now don't even claim to have it perfectly. But I fight to keep that balance because that's what the Bible does. And that's why when you listen to my preaching, you man, if depending on where the text goes, that's where I'm going. Right. 
and you'll listen to it and you'll be like wow man he really focused on the love of god yeah because that was the point of the passage mm-hmm. like i don't have to make an apology if that's the point of the passage i'm gonna preach it with all my heart right i don't need to i don't need to apologize for that because i'm i'm not driven by a theological system i don't care about that mm-hmm. i care about the text yeah. and that passage i preached on good friday was all it's all about the love of god mm-hmm. yeah i i was a little wasn't it wasn't like i was skeptical or like i was like wait a minute what is this all about but i was it would it just really more or less like there was it was definitely balanced i'd say that was a martin lloyd jones uh uh, type of sermon it was i definitely felt a balance there but whenever i hear a pastor talk 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 about god loves you all these things you know a lot of times i'll be honest it kind of turns me off because it's you know what I've what I've seen, and this is just generally, it's not balanced in a way to say, well, you know, we're we're talking about the love of God, and we're talking about you know God's choice in loving us, and we deserve wrath. It it really is very unbalanced in that way. So that's why I brought that up. No, it's it's. I'm glad you brought it up because um, it's an issue in the Reformed camp, which is which is the camp that I swim in with all of my pastor friends, and I've had this conversation for many years, and to the point that a lot of guys won't even tell people that God loves them. And it's ludicrous. It's Mm -hmm. ludicrous. Um, But because they're so so entrenched into the doctrinal system, and uh, and yet that's why I started out my sermon on on that night quoting from uh, from Thomas Watson. Uh, who quoted from Augustine, the quintessential Calvinist, <laughs> a thousand years before Calvin was even born, Augustine, who said, right, that the cross is the pulpit of God's love, right? I mean, that's, but uh, sadly, so many, uh, so many people have, have uh, grown accustomed to the modern church's view of love, and so many Reformed guys have actually because of that, the pendulum has swung to where they don't even talk about it. And therefore, people in their churches grow up and are uh, incompletely um, edified, meaning they're, they're growing immaturely to a, to a degree where they're just so rough and speak only judgment and wrath. And it's just like, no, that's not balanced. That's not good. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so we see that a lot where guys are just too hardcore and not grace and not mercy and not love and uh, we can't let the modern church with all of its problems uh drive us to the other end right we've got to hold the line in the middle of truth yeah we've got to let the truth talk and and just because the modern church has love all messed up doesn't mean we don't talk about love mm-hmm. not, not at all we talk about it biblically and that's the key and that's that's why um, it's important to preach that and preach it with passion when it comes up. Like I did a few weeks ago, actually, when I was preaching on the first, first again, you can't get away from it. It comes up in every chapter yeah. in first, uh, Second Timothy 1.7. God has not given us a spirit of fear, yeah. but what? Power, love, yeah. sound mind. Love, yeah. right? It all starts with love. I am convinced, I am convinced more than ever that you can summarize the whole Christian life, all that God calls us to and all that we're supposed to do, and all that he is, all down to one word, love. Mm -hmm. That's why uh, Matthew 22, 
37 to 40 is so pivotal. Mm -hmm. The whole, I didn't say that, right? Jesus did. The whole law, the whole law in the scriptures can be summarized in these two commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Yep. Key word, one word, love. But the only way we learn that is, as First John says, learning God's love. Yep. Because apart from that, we don't, we don't know love. So it's huge. That's good. That's good. So as, as far as um, I, uh, I'm going to ask this question, it's going to take us on a rabbit trail just real quick. We'll come we back. Never, we we'll, never do that. We never do that. Uh, <laughs> one thing. Okay. One of the first things that I learned uh, at uh, Bellcroft when I started coming was the pendulum swing that you talk yes. about through church history. Um, yes. As far as like the pendulum swing, is that kind of where that would land? Like, you know, some talking about God's love too much, not enough wrath yeah. and, does that is that kind of where that's coming from as well or totally totally so you can trace all of church history by the pendulum swings it's, okay it's, it's, can it's, you explain what that is first so that people yeah. that are listening or yep. watching will know yep. it's remarkable when you study this out in church history because because it, it's remarkable because man never changes right mm -hmm. that's one of the things that's interesting about anthropology and the study of man is that we are so consistent as sinners right and so you can trace man apart from christ or apart from a biblical worldview you know what he's going to do he's going to go to one or two extremes we right. are extreme beings we are constantly doing it mm -hmm. so yes so what you see throughout church history is you have uh these these extreme uh man-centered views of man-centered theology which is heretical and uh, and then then it swings to the other uh, spectrum and it goes all the way up into some view where God is no longer God because mm -hmm. he's this weird being that's that has no love for man and he's this unapproachable um, ridiculous um, deity that's the weirdest thing like for instance when you take um, you take the view of the um, uh, uh, Mormonism which is all out of the Gnostics right where God is this hidden being and uh, this deification of ideas and to get to god you got to have secret knowledge that only a few people had and i mean it's just all this weird stuff where right. the pendulum just was way up there but then then it comes all the way back down to the montanist so you had the gnostics who had this weird view of god where you couldn't really know him unless you had the secret knowledge and he was this truncated platonistic being that there was he was not matter so there was no physicality to god at all he was just a spiritual entity this deified idea is all it was and you couldn't even understand that without the secret knowledge and you never got enough secret knowledge so you're always searching for more this mm -hmm. is weird that's really what mormonism is based on but then you had to then you had then you flip the pendulum to the other side and you have the montanists in the second century who were the modern day charismatics and Montanism was all about physicality and emotionalism. How do you spell that? M M O T. Yes, yes. A N T I. Yeah. Montanist. Yes, Montanist. Montanism. Okay. Montanism. And so you'd have him. He was a heretic in like uh, uh, one forty. Yeah. You look okay. It up. Anyway, and so he it, it was crazy, right? And so you have these two spectrums where you have 
this emotional uh, man-centered theology where God speaks directly to me and walks with me and and almost makes me a God versus this other God who's nothing more than this spiritual idea that I'm constantly going after that I never get, mm -hmm. right? Well, then the, the truth is in the middle, and the biblical truth is down here. And uh, then you go all the way, then you go into the third century, and you've got, um, you've got uh, Athanasius and, um, uh, oh, it's slipping my mind right now, where Jehovah's Witnesses, the Arian, and Arian. So you've mm -hmm. got the whole argument between Athanasius and Arianism. And so you, Arianism was, again, where Jesus is not God. And so Jesus was the first created being. Again, pendulum swings all the way up right. where it's clearly that Jesus is God. Hmm. And, uh, and so you've got this Jesus who's not God. And then the pendulum swings over here. And, and it, it, it's ridiculous in what, how they view God. But you had Athanasius. It was the one guy, and at times he was all alone, who literally stood up for the truth of what of what biblical theology, Christology was, that that Christ was both God and man. Mm -hmm. And so you see these pendulum swings. And then in the fifth century, then you've got really the seedbed for Roman Catholicism starts to starts to happen, and and that goes through the Dark Ages, and it just keeps going. It swings back and forth and back and then when you get to before the reformation you got roman catholicism and all of its craziness right and uh, and it just keeps swinging and then eventually you have um well in in the fifth century you had augustine and pelagian and so you you, you again two, just yeah two different it just keeps going all mm. the way through and so uh that's yeah. That, so what we're dealing with is nothing new. Mm -hmm. Nothing new. So you have the uh, the the pendulum swings to where God is all love and He's nothing else, mm -hmm. and that's the modern church, mm -hmm. right? You know, like Joel Osteen, he never talks about sin. He never talks. Well, whatever love that is, that's not biblical love. Yeah. Right. And 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 or you can go over to the other extreme, and no one talks about love mm -hmm. because they're they're again they're overreacting. Because mm. that's what the pendulum swing is. It's an overreaction. So, over, or like an overcorrection. It's an overcorrection, yeah. and the man always does that in theology. Mm -hmm. He always does. It's I'm telling you, guaranteed. So you take somebody who teaches false teaching, or like like um, take um, the charismatic movement, right? Mm. Clearly a pendulum swing. Right. God's here for me. It's all about me. He's going to talk to me, walk with me. He's going to take care of me, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's totally out out the window theologically pendulum swing right well now what what happens often pendulum swings over here and nobody wants to talk about god nobody wants to uh, admit that there are emotions that come with being a, a christian nobody wants to talk about the reality that there is a, a a there is a mystical side to christianity in which our emotions are do play a part we don't live by them we don't trust in them but they are part of who we are. We're emotional beings. Mm -hmm. And people don't want to talk about that. They mm -hmm. want to create a, a robotic believer. And it's just like, no, you just because they have gone out to lunch with that, don't let it deny what is reality, that we are emotional beings. And mm -hmm. those emotions need to be brought under self-control. That's what the Bible teaches. And, and our emotions need to be driven by truth, not the other way around. But that's the pendulum swing. No, no, you know, we're just these robotic people and it's like no don't don't do that and it's the constant battle it's the constant battle yeah that's good
now we can get back off the rabbit trail because you know as you were talking about that i was like man that i remember seeing that whole pendulum swing yeah, i got a whole chart on it yeah i got a whole chart where every heresy is a pendulum swing mm-hmm. from one from one to the other from one extreme to the other and um it's 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 pretty uh it's pretty stark and and uh scary actually because we do it all the time mm-hmm. so uh, going coming back to the uh the good friday sermon uh i have another question something that you said and maybe i heard it wrong but i just want some clarification uh yeah. you were saying that christ did not become a sinner on the cross exactly. now when I look at and and the first thing that popped in my head was Second uh, Corinthians five twenty one, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so yep. that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So exactly. am I reading that wrong? Because it did say that he became sin. He made him to for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Exactly, exactly. So uh, yes, what he's talking about there is not that Christ became sin by way of he became a sinner christ became the sin bearer that's exactly so you can go to eight thousand different scriptures like isaiah 53 where it says god laid on him the iniquity of us all mm-hmm. you go to first peter uh 1 22 where it said christ bore our sins in his body on the tree mm-hmm. uh, where you go back to the old testament sacrificial system on the day of atonement and you look at the lamb that was slain on behalf of the sins of the people. The lamb never sinned. The lamb never did anything wrong. It's just a lamb. It's just, right. a, it's just a sheep. Right. But the high priest would lay his hand on the head of that sheep or that lamb or that goat, and and he would confess the sins of the people. He would pray, and he was literally transferring the sins of the people to that animal, and then he would slit the throat of the animal. And... and and that one, so remember, there were two. So the one animal became the sacrifice. The other animal that he prayed on and put his hands on, then that animal was what? Driven to, out yeah, into the wilderness. The, wilderness. the scapegoat he or whatever? The scapegoat. He carried the sins away. Mm-hmm. Well, Christ is both. He's the sacrificial lamb, that the blood that is shed. And he's the, uh, he's the, he's the scapegoat by way of he carries the, 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 the sins of the people. And so... Um, it's crystal clear because the Bible says emphatically multiple times that Jesus Christ is is uh, without sin. You know, the writer of Hebrews says God was or Christ was tempted in all ways as we are and yet without sin. Right. Mm-hmm. And so um, he's totally sinless and he has to remain that or, or else the sacrifice has has no redeeming value yeah. at all. Yeah. And so uh, so, no, he never. He never becomes a sinner. He always, Christ always remains who he's always been. Mm-hmm. Eternal, holy son of God. He never changes. Though many heretical, uh, many heretical doctrines uh, believe that. Yeah. There, are some, there are some that believe that Christ was never man. He was just a phantom. He kind of was a ghost. Really? That looked like a man. Yes. <laughs> a pretty big, a pretty big. Falsehood. Really? Oh yeah! Like the whole time he was on Earth, he was just a yes. ghost. He was never a he was never a man. No, and um, so there were some that teach that he was a man up until the point of the cross. Then he took on his phantom stage. Wow! Because, again, because he's holy, 
and therefore then he becomes sinful mm-hmm. on the cross. And none of that, none of that squares with Scripture at all. And uh, he remained 100% God and 100% man the entire time. And um, remember, he was conceived of what? The Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. He is called the Holy One of God. Jesus, uh, I think I said it on Friday, that God twice looks down from heaven and said, this is my son in whom I'm, who I'm well pleased. Mm-hmm. Right? And so, so the reality is that, that uh, Christ came to bear the sins of the world. Um, John the Baptist said, look, there's the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, right? That's what he, what he is. He is the sin bearer. He is the propitiation. He is the sacrifice. Um, but, but just because he's a sacrifice doesn't mean he's, he's a sinner. And um, he, he can't be. And he wasn't. And so that text is not saying that he became a sinner it's essentially he became the sin bearer mm-hmm. or he was the deal is imp- imputation. So I can show you in the text, forgive me. I'll put my glasses on. No, you good. But he says in, um, in verse 18 of that, of chapter five, he said, all of this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us, uh, the ministry of reconciliation Verse 19, this is in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message. That word counting is important because just as just as Christ does not count our sins against us, Mm -hmm. he counts them against God. So he doesn't he doesn't um, he counts. Christ's righteousness to us. So if God, if God has to be, or Christ has to become a literal sinner, then that means I become literally righteous as a believer. Well, I'm not literally righteous. None of us are, yeah. meaning we never sin again. Right. So we yeah, get definitely Christ not. <laughs> we get Christ's righteousness mm-hmm. positionally, but not literally. Mm-hmm. That happens in heaven, and so so it is with with Christ. He gets our sins, not literally. Right. He doesn't become a sinner. That would be literally. But he gets them positionally. He gets them imputed, counted. It's a it's a it's a it's a um, a banking acquisitional term. And so it's it's the fact that Christ imputed to Christ is my sin imputed to me is his righteousness. Mm -hmm. Not literally, because if it's literal, then that means I'm perfectly holy. Right. And uh, and so you can see how it doesn't work. It doesn't work one way. It, if Christ gets my sins literally, then I get His righteousness literally. You right. can't have it one one. You know, you can't have it both ways. Right, right. And so, does that make sense? Yeah, that's good. So, my special guest has now arrived in the uh, the makeshift studio. Uh, if you're watching, you can see her behind me. Uh, she's, yes, ma'am. She's the redhead. Can you hear anything that Pastor Matt is saying? I got to give you the headphones. So yeah. here, here, go ahead. Hold on. So, so Matt, here's the question that she had. Was this from the Good Friday sermon that he did or was it from uh, Easter? The Easter sermon. Which one? I think it was from Easter. So go ahead. Go ahead and ask the question. Make sure you speak it to the mic. Why say, did... First say hi. 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 <laughs> say hi to Pastor Matt. He's, he's, he can hear everything you're saying. Can you hear him? I don't know. Yes. Yes, you can hear me. Yes. See? There hi. You go. Go ahead. Um, 
why did some of the people in the Bible not like Jesus? I'm glad you asked. That's a really good question. Well, because uh, in reality, uh, all of us are born not really liking Jesus. So we're all born sinners. Every one of us are born sinners. Romans chapter 3 says no one seeks after God. No one uh, searches after God on his own. And so because our hearts are sinful, because our hearts only desire really what we want. And when Jesus, being perfectly holy, the Son of God, he, come, he came and he preached truth. And those who hate truth naturally will hate him because he's convicting. He's calling them to righteousness, which means to repent of their sins and to follow God. And man does not want to do that. Man naturally hates that. He hates anything that has to do with laying down his life for the life of God. And that's all Christ talked about. And so uh, that's why uh, virtually everyone really hated him in that sense, turned away from him. That's why the crowds cried, crucify, crucify, which would have been representative for the whole nation. Now, there were clearly uh, individuals that wanted to follow Christ and love Christ, but that was because God had done a work in their heart. And, uh, but the bulk of the people didn't, just like the bulk of people today. And nobody follows uh, Christ and follows God unless God does a work in their heart. That's why he said in John 6, Jesus said, you can't follow me unless the Father draws you. And it's a, it's a, it's a great gift of God. And that's the word we call grace. Grace. And um, so, yeah, so they hated him. And you can go back and have your dad read this to you later in John chapter 1, where it talks about God, uh, Christ coming to earth. And it says in John chapter 1, about verse 12, says Jesus came to his own, meaning his own people. And it says, and his own people did not receive him, meaning paraphrased, they didn't want him. They hated him, but he came to them, but they received him not. But then it goes on and it says, but to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be called sons of God. And so right there in that passage, at the beginning of Jesus's birth, which is what John's talking about, he was already laying out that the people weren't going weren't gonna to love him. But uh, that wasn't the point he came. The point he came was to show that God, God is coming in love and he's coming to save a people. And he's coming to offer that salvation to all people despite the fact that they didn't love him. Is that helpful? Yes, it's very <laughs> helpful. Thank you. Yes. So the question is, right? The question is, do you, do you love Christ? That's the question. Are you, hello? Are you going to answer it? I need more time. You need more time. Yeah. You do need more time. You That's right. You do need more time. You just keep learning and growing and seeing but you're right. There was no reason for people to, to hate him. He was perfect. He never did anything wrong. He never hurt anyone. He never said a bad word, did a bad thing. He was perfectly holy, meaning he never sinned. He had not a bad thought, not a bad word. He did everything for everyone else. Everyone should have loved him. But the fact that they didn't just proves what he thought was true, that man is evil and man doesn't want to follow God. And that should break our hearts, and that should make us want to turn to him in faith and repentance. You good? Yeah. All right, well, thank you for answering your question. I'll take the headphones Thank you. Back thank you. Give me your headphones back, girl. Bye.
Bye. If you don't recognize that voice, that is the uh, voice in the very beginning of the podcast that says, this is Truth Talks. That's her. So A famous voice. Yeah. At the very end is my other, uh, well, it was my wife first, and then uh, my my other daughter, well, one of my other daughters uh, does the very end. So my uh, my the oldest one living with me, she's 18. Uh, she's very incognito, so she doesn't want to do that. <laughs> and my other one doesn't live in the house, but you know it's all free labor that I use uh, for voiceovers <laughs> and stuff. So, all right. So, uh, so th- I, I really want to dive into a a separate. Uh, well, this is it. It really it does have to do with the Easter story uh, yeah. or the resurrection uh, story. Um, but. Here's 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 the question. Here's one of the questions that I have. So the way that I learned this is that during the uh, time that Jesus spent on the cross and his his physical body was on the cross. And I'm I'm not saying I I learned I I believe this now, but this is kind of like what I was taught while he was on the cross. His spirit left the cross when he said he gave gave up the ghost. His spirit left the cross. Yeah. And then and uh, this is also illustrated in the Passion of the Christ uh, in a way. Uh, The the, the movie, The Passion of the Christ. There's a lot of things that are illustrated in that movie that are not good. Yeah. So so I I, I kind of given people that are listening or watching kind of like where I'm going with my question. While he was his physical body was on the cross, his spirit left. He gave up the ghost. His spirit actually went to hell to grab the keys of life and death from Satan. And that is during that time is when that happened. So, uh, one, I want you to kind of walk through that whole, like, uh, what happened, if the scripture even speaks of it. Uh, but also, um, with that being the case, this whole idea of the keys, uh, it's, it's, I, I really have questions on what those keys are and what is that all about that whole, like, and I couldn't even tell you the scripture that it is. It's just the, the keys to, to life and death. And, uh, that is what I, uh, what I was, I was learned when I was a kid. So coming up in church, my, uh, nice. Keep going. My, Keep my nice, about it. It, it's, it, it was first Baptist and then they turned into, non-denominational which which is a denomination (laughs) but uh that was kind of what i was i was taught and what was presented to me and that was my understanding um and then we'll talk about uh the peace in israel that comes from the the beast yeah so um you're probably um, i'm assuming referencing first peter three is probably uh, a passage um, in First Peter three. Let me um, read it to you and see if this doesn't jog memory. The Bible uses the term keys quite a, a number of times. I quoted, uh, I forget what I think I quoted uh, Easter Sunday. I quoted the Revelation one. It's like eighteen, a glorious passage where Christ is standing there before. John the uh, the Apostle John and he says I am the Alpha the Omega I have the keys 
of death mm-hmm. in Hades. I'm the one who was yeah. who was dead and is now alive. That was yeah. that was what yeah. sparked that too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so that that is there. But the passage you're probably referring to because you you said a number of things. He says. Um, Let's see, verse uh, 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience uh, waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. Um, That passage where it says he went and essentially went to hell and preached, Mm -hmm. you know, um, in hell. And so many people, many people, um, um, take that passage and come up with (laughs) all kinds of, uh, uh, interpretations, um, about what Christ, what Christ did and what he didn't do. But, um, let me go back and make a couple of points clear. When it talks about keys, he's talking about authority. Okay, keys always is a is a is a. Let me read that passage out of Revelation. Another another um, passage where that's one, really helpful. You talking about one eighteen? Yeah, I can another, read it while yeah, you're looking. That, go ahead. Um, well, let me do seventeen and eighteen. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, "Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades." That is kind of what uh, my understanding, you know, coming up. That was what uh, during, you know, while when he gave up the ghost, that was, you know, when he went down and grabbed the keys of death and hell. Yeah. So, so there's. He has the keys, which speaks of authority. It means he has victory. He is the one who holds the authority over life and death. Remember Hebrews um, He being Jesus, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. Jesus now, because he died and rose from the grave, he he, uh, conquered Satan, who had the power of death, meaning he had the the, uh, power of the fear of death over, over man. And he... He, now Christ, holds the keys, meaning I have conquered sin and death. I'm the only one who died and then came back to life. There's nobody that can do that. I have the authority now to give that to others. So when it talks about keys, Jesus uses the same analogy when it talks about it in Matthew 18, when uh, when he talks about having keys, giving keys to Peter, giving keys to the church. Mm -hmm. When he talks about loosing and binding, it's the same exact thing. What you loose on earth, I've already loosed in heaven. What you loose, what's loosed in heaven has already been loosed in earth. Right. Literally using the same language of unlocking, taking the keys and unlocking. And it's speaking of, of authority and how Christ has the authority to judge. Christ has the, that's what he's talking about in Matthew 18 in church, church discipline. And then he uses it again in Matthew 16 when he tells Peter, I'm going to give you the keys. Mm-hmm. And you have the keys, Peter, and this gets, <laughs> this yeah. gets used in Roman Catholicism. Oh, lot. really? Well, yeah, because the Pope has the keys, meaning he has the authority. Really? And, yeah, well, because the Pope follows Peter. And so, therefore, uh, everybody, everybody okay. and that's why he has the authority. What is it? I think it's in Matthew uh, Matthew 16. You can read that passage and, and uh, pull it up. 
there. That okay, yeah, I did hear that uh, a couple weeks ago. How the Pope was the one that followed after Peter, um, oh, but yeah. I didn't, I didn't even realize that that's what they were talking about as well. I, the first thing person that came to my mind was Kenneth Copeland <laughs> when you started talking about having the authority to, you know, COVID nineteen. Oh yeah, <laughs> so verse, another level. Read, uh, read the verse eighteen and nineteen. I tell you, Peter, you I tell you, you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth. Yeah, shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And so he's talking about their authority. Mm -hmm. He's talking about the authority to speak, right? The word of God to be able to speak truth that is all given by the word of God. He's going to use the same exact language when you go over to verse uh, chapter 18 and he starts talking about church discipline. And you asked this question a few weeks ago right. about the uh, uh, where two or three are gathered <laughs> yeah. together, right? It's the yep. same exact language. So when you get to uh, verse uh, Matthew 18, verse 16, uh, but if he will not hear, take one or two more by the mouth or two, and then uh, verse 18, assuredly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And there it is again, the two or three are gathered in my name. He's talking about the reality of church discipline. Mm -hmm. the binding and loosing is talking about the authority given to the church as the word of God goes out, because that's the ultimate authority, and God has already established it, and now you have the authority when it's based upon God's word because God's word is his word. So it's already been given in heaven and now it's come down on earth and you have the authority to hold people accountable to this word. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's the authority. And so when Jesus says now he has the keys, he's talking about the authority over death, the authority over meaning he's I'm victorious. I've conquered it. I am, I am now the, 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 as he says in uh, revelation one eighteen, I was once dead and now I'm alive. And I give that, now authority or you could say i give that blessing to all those who come and follow me they now have conquered death right because they follow in my footsteps and that's what he's talking about when he talks about the keys it's not so much going down and snatching a literal set of keys out of satan's hands right know, and walking around jingling them <laughs> right he's talking about what they represent right and mm. uh, and so a key represented authority i can unlock it i can lock you in i can open you you know free you and where satan would lock you in that's what hebrews 2 talks about because of uh, sin brings death and satan carries the the power of of death in that sense and the whole world listen there's one thing covid 19 has demonstrated without question is that the whole world is scared to death hmm. the whole world it we are watching hebrews i'll read it hebrews we are watching hebrews lived out before us hebrews 2 it's just been it's been convicting to me as i'm watching this covid 19 stuff and um in hebrews 2 14 he says in so much then as the children as the children have partaken of flesh and blood he himself likewise shared in the same that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death that is the devil and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. And this this is what Christ did. 
And so he he now has the power. Mm-hmm. He now has the keys. He now has the authority. And uh, because he's conquered that. And uh, he always had the authority and the power by way of his sovereignty. Mm-hmm. But now he has it by way of his atonement, mm-hmm. where he's taken Satan's greatest weapon, which is death. That's that's the worst thing Satan can do is kill somebody. And then, of course, then then if they're not a believer, they'll spend eternity in hell. And that's what Satan wants. Mm-hmm. But the worst he can do is bring death and through multiple means. And Christ then took his Satan's greatest shot. He took his greatest weapon and it killed him. And Christ won. He comes back to life. And mm-hmm. says, that's it. That's yeah. all you got. <laughs> Well, so, I think I was more confused when I when whenever I would that, you know, that whole theology or concept came up. I think I was more confused about the fact that Satan had anything like he had the keys he had. Like, how did he do it? And why does Christ have to go into hell to go and get it as if, you know, like he had there was this huge battle and, you know, he had to go and fight to get the. I was like, it was really confusing to even hear that as a kid and it never made sense to me yeah well of course not and that's a theology that's still around today mm-hmm. it's a theology that does not believe in god's sovereignty and it believes that and i, I actually brought this up in part of the sermon uh, I, I make references to this from time to time um, because people that don't believe in god's sovereignty believe what you're saying and that is that there is good and evil almost like a star wars mm-hmm. mindset right that there Satan and there's God and there's tit for tat and so uh, God does something and then Satan does this so like take the Garden of Eden God created everything it's good then Satan came in and did his thing and 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 sent God's plan into upheaval and then God had to come back in the flood and do and you just have this going back and forth Mm -hmm. there's clearly there's clearly a battle without question meaning Satan's always on the attack but instead of it going back and forth, it's more like this. God is over the whole thing, and it's all happening the way he wants, and Satan keeps going like this, right. and he can't get through, right? Right. And that's more what the Bible teaches. It's not a back and forth. It's a God has a plan, and his plan is working perfectly, and Satan is actually, in a very mysterious and yet very clear way, is part of that plan, and Satan keeps trying to thwart it, and he can't. Mm-hmm. And the cross is a perfect example of that, right. where Satan was clearly at work manipulating behind the scenes so much of that. And yet, as Acts 2.23 says, all that happened happened exactly how, uh, how God wanted it to. Of course, Isaiah 53 lays it out almost explicitly how it's going to happen, and that's exactly what happened. And mm-hmm. so it's pretty marvelous, again, showing the power ultimately be- belongs to God. Yet at the same time, at the same time, there is the reality that man had to be purchased. Man had to be redeemed, not not from Satan. That's that's a um, that's an improper. That's a C.S. Lewis uh, uh, atonement perspective, where God uh, uh, essentially uh, propitiates Satan. That's what you see in like the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where Satan has the rule over man. And Christ comes in and gives his life, and basically God pays off Satan and gets man back. That's not what propitiation means at all. Um, When God propitiates, he does not propitiate Satan, meaning he does not satisfy Satan. God satisfies his own justice, Mm -hmm. his own wrath. That's what he does. He propitiates himself. Mm -hmm. 
Satan is part of the equation because it's through Satan that ultimately um, sin erupts. Now, man brings sin into the world, but Satan was the first one to sin in heaven, mm-hmm. right? And so, uh, and Satan wants to kill and destroy, and that's why he has the power of death because that's his ultimate plan. And uh, but uh, in Hebrews two, and at the cross, God took his greatest weapon. That's why I said in Colossians two, where it says Satan was disarmed at the cross. He was totally like I've often said. He he shoots with Nerf guns because <laughs> of the cross. Right. Because that's all he's got, mm-hmm. and death is all he's got. And he can tempt. He's serious. He can hurt. He can afflict. He can do all that he does. He can twist truth. But at the end of the day, his greatest ploy is to destroy. Mm-hmm. But he can't destroy the believer because Christ has overcome. Therefore, he has no real power. Mm-hmm. And that's the point. That's a good, uh, I appreciate you kind of repeating that because, uh, you know, just kind of clearing out the, the bad theology that I've learned uh, throughout the ages, um, the ages, like I'm that old <laughs> throughout my life. Um, one of those things is that, you know, Satan is the enemy. And, uh, in my old church, it was, you know, old churches, I would say it was, you know, we have to bind the devil, you know, we rebuke Satan, you know, we, we cast out his, and destroy his plan and all these things. And it puts more and more focus on what Satan is doing, uh, versus, and, and him being the reason why so many things are just going wrong versus, you know, you need to be taking care of the sin in your life and looking uh, at God and seeing, you know, uh, uh, yourself and your sin. And that is the whole salvific uh, uh, process uh, uh, towards that glorification. So that, that's kind of what um, that's kind of what uh, my brain goes to as soon as I heard that. I was like, oh, yeah, uh, that that was that was. And I still hear that when I if you know, if I come across like a clip of somebody there like. You know, Satan, you know, he's the he's the accuser of the brethren, you know, so you can't speak aught against your your brother, you know, or, you know, he's you got to bind him, his plan, his work, you know, and, and all these types of things. Well, and that's a big deal that that comes up a lot. I've come up at Belcroft a number of times because so many different people are coming out of the charismatic church. Praise the Lord. But um, Satan is the accuser of the brother. That's that's what that's what the his name means. Mm-hmm. Um he is our adversary and, and uh, one of our great enemies. But our greatest enemy, never forget this, never forget this. Your greatest enemy is not Satan. Your greatest enemy is your own heart. Mm-hmm. That's where your greatest battle is always, is always fought. It's interesting because, because our hearts are so prone to, prone to wander, Isaiah 53, because our hearts are so, uh, the proclivity of our hearts is always in purity, James uh, chapter one uh versus what is it 12 13 we are tempted when the lusts of our own flesh are enticed Mm -hmm. satan would even have less less enticement less power less ability to thwart uh us i.e man if our hearts were more in tune with god Mm -hmm. so the issue is 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 not external because satan is external the world is external all it can do is entice us. All it can do is walk by in front of us and tempt us. But it's the furnace of sin within our hearts that is the ultimate problem. That's what needs to be, quote, bound. That's what needs to be, no, Colossians 3, 5, destroyed, killed. Mm-hmm. That's the issue. Right. Satan's no joke, and Satan uh, cannot be taken lightly, and, and yet at the same time, he should not be overstated. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, that's why Michael the Arch- Archangel and Jude, when you read about him in Jude, he wouldn't even speak a negative word against Satan. He respected him so much, meaning he held him in, in, a, in, a, in a place where he understood how powerful Satan was. He was not going to disrespect him, meaning speak in ill will against him, speak disparagingly in a, in a manner of pride and arrogance. Hmm. And yet you watch the charismatic church, man, they're, they're saying nonsense, mm-hmm. speaking in ways that are just totally anti-biblical. And it's like, it's scary. It's yeah. the way they talk. And your, pro- your biggest problem isn't Satan. Don't give him more credit than you should give him. Don't deny the power he has and the fact that he roars around like a lion seeking whom he may devour. Don't deny him. That's that's remember the pendulum swing. Mm-hmm. So you can go one way or the other. Right. You can deny him and say, ah, he's not a big deal. It's under the blood, the cross. We don't have to worry about Satan. He's no big deal. Mm-hmm. That's the pendulum swing. Or it's like Satan's your problem. You're sick because of Satan. You're hurting because of Satan. You're sinning because of Satan. That's pendulum swing over here. Nowhere in the Bible. Mm-hmm. The other pendulum, don't worry about Satan. He's no big deal. Nowhere in the Bible. Mm-hmm. The Bible says your biggest problem is your heart. Right. But do not lose sight. The world is tempting you, and Satan is out to get you. Mm-hmm. So you fight a battle on three fronts, and uh, you follow what the Apostle Paul says. We're not, we're not, uh, um, we're not oblivious to the wiles of the devil. We know how he works, and we're wise to him, and we watch out for him, and we we stand alert to him. But our greatest enemy is our heart, and we do battle there twenty four seven. Yeah. Yeah. So this this last question I have for you, it is not meant to be a long conversation, um, but I am talking to uh, Matt White. We'll see. (laughs) Spiritual gift of brevity. (laughs) I'm waiting on it. Yeah. So this is this is one. uh, And I actually uh, this is what I studied this morning. um, So it's it's very fresh in my head. Um, I heard of this concept uh, of Ordis Salutis. Have you ever okay. heard of that? Yes, I have. I, I, when that's, I, a concept, that's a concept um, that uh, if that doesn't blow your mind, that you didn't read about it. Oh, right? man. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I was on my walk this morning, and I, and I heard a podcast about it. And I'm like, oh, that that is juicy right there. I got to go back. And so I started writing it out. So what I've been doing and the, the, I, what I would like for you to do is uh, to one, explain what it is. Um, you know, what Ordus Salutis is Ordus yeah. O O R D U S Salutis S A L U T I S. And yeah. then um, uh, the scripture that I have uh, for it is Romans eight, uh, 29 and 30. Um, yeah. That's one, but I know that there are probably some more, uh, that you could kind of think through to identify like that whole thing yep. as well. Yeah, so uh, it's a it's an interesting term and it's a very interesting concept that honestly I think when you talk about it you just got to be careful because this is another one of those areas where the pendulum swings really easily. Right. And uh, again, so you have to you have to just go with scripture, what scripture teaches and when scripture stops, you got to stop because you can get yourself into all kinds of theological um, problems one way or the other, if mm-hmm. you're not careful. But um, Ordus of Salutis is basically just a fancy uh, Latin term for the order of salvation, basically. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it's the it's the it's the order in which salvation kind of happens, or or the uh, the aspects of salvation would be a better way to say it. The different the different um, uh, results or ramifications or characteristics 
of salvation, like uh, election, regeneration, justification, all of those types of things. You know, how do they happen? Where do they happen? What's the order? And then it really gets interesting. So you have that aspect of the order of solutions, but then you have, it goes even further back than that. And, and that, that's where it gets really, really tricky when you start, when you start looking at the order of salutis as it pertains to the fall of man. And Ooh, so now okay. you, now you start getting into, did God, did God, uh, in his plan was his plan to save a specific people before they fell or after they fell, hmm. or was it to devise a plan that 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 he had before they fell and then saved them out of that and it, it gets it gets into uh, a whole different um uh dimension of theology when you start messing messing with where does the fall in god's plan fit with god's election and his ultimate plan of salvation mm-hmm. and so does he does he save uh, his people elect before the fall or after the fall and and again there's different degrees to this and there's different ways guys look at it. And mm-hmm. then that creates a whole theological category right. of guys and, uh, uh, where they are, um, sub lapsarianism, lapsarianism, supra lapsarianism. Those are all just fancy. <laughs> yeah. Those are just fancy wow. words that, that kind of reiterate where they are as it pertain as it becomes to the fall and salvation and where God's order of salutis is. And so much of that you can't discern from Scripture. That's more theological constructs mm-hmm. that guys kind of impose on Scripture. Some of that we don't really know. Um, but the order of salutis by way of, of uh, election, regeneration, justification, adoption, reconciliation, that, that is more biblically based. Mm-hmm. And you, can, you can you know clearly go to Romans 8. That's why you went there where it literally lays out what the Puritans called the golden chain of salvation. Okay. Where he literally lays it out. It talks about calling, election, uh, adoption, reconciliation, glorification, all of that. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, that's that's the shortest answer I can give to one of the most complex questions <laughs> you have ever asked. <laughs> the- so there you go. Okay. I well, I, yeah. I I, did, I mean, I can go a lot longer, but it's going to be very complex. Yeah, I, I figured. I on the surface. But you know, I I did not think that it was going to be. I didn't know that it was all of that involved. I, when I heard oh, yeah. it, I was like, oh man, that is a great like way of putting it. And and so what I'm going to do for everybody is I'm going to read uh, uh, Romans eight twenty nine and thirty just so you'll know. And that, I did I never knew about the the golden chain. That's pretty cool too. For those, oh, yeah. so it's Romans. 8 29 and 30 for those he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among among many brothers and those he predestined he also called and those whom he called he also justified and those whom he justified he also glorified so it's kind of like the you know the foreknew and then they were predestined to be conformed 
then they were called and they were justified and then glorified. So that's kind of like the, the, the ordus uh, salutis of that. I think that that would be a great conversation for us to have on, a, on another podcast um, because of the fact that, you know, with that being the case, we, you know, it's, it's, and, and I thought about it because, you know, people like processes and people like, you know, how, how do you do this and what comes next and all those types of things. Um, and then in the men's Bible study, we've been looking at glorification. Uh, so that for me, it was like, oh, well, this puts everything kind of in this, in this super clear perspective. So you can kind of see the spectrum of everything and you can see, oh, well, glorification is the very end. What comes before that? What comes before that? And the fact that he foreknew us and then called us and then pre we were predestined like that for me it just opened my eyes and i was like oh man like this is the coolest thing ever but now i find out that i have to go even deeper <laughs> because there's so many other aspects of it and i also have to be careful because i don't want to you know kind of put this in a category that is you know un uh, uh, unreasonably you know vague and uh or or too deep you know i would say yeah. so no, the order the way you've described it and the way you've been taught praise the lord mm -hmm. is 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 what is clearly biblical right the order the chain of salvation the golden chain of salvation which mm -hmm. really begins with election mm -hmm. and uh, which means it begins with god and then it flows out and also a big part that's not in romans 8 but that's in every biblical order of salutis is is faith and repentance. Okay, right? that's a that's a massive factor in the order of salutis. You don't have salvation without faith and repentance. And again, that's biblically being doctrinally sound in our in our gospel uh, salvific uh, teaching and understanding. You've got to have faith and repentance, right? Without faith, there is there is there is no salvation. Mm -hmm. And um, so you factor that in there. That's the essentially you can get it down to one word. That's the word conversion. Mm -hmm. And so, how does that all happen? Well, it happens by the grace of God, but through the 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 uh, the blessing of the gift of faith and repentance that man does and God gives. And so, you got to factor that into it as well. So, yeah, no, and you've been learning that in the men's Bible study. That's mm -hmm. why now you see how I've, I've been teaching that. Never use that word because it throws everybody off. Right. It would be very confusing, but you've been learning it through all those roots of godliness, right. which is roots of salvation. Yeah. But like I said, when you get into the theological construct of the order of salutis and you read about it, it gets really complex. And I've, I've had to do this throughout seminary where you start then wrestling with where does the fall fit in the order of salutis? And and then it gets really complex. And mm -hmm. and uh, that's just part of the conversation that's generally not as helpful uh, because it's more logical than it is biblical. Yeah, that's good. Well, I appreciate uh, you kind of breaking that down. We did not talk about uh, the end times in this uh, conversation, uh, but uh, now you're prepared for uh, that conversation coming up and, you know, you uh, will will be able to come into the conversation uh, with with <laughs> with uh, both arms swinging and and both uh, guns loaded to to have that conversation about that. Uh, it's been bugging me because of all the stuff that I've been hearing about uh, COVID nineteen and and all these things. So I just want to kind of talk through it and kind of get some some understanding. Um, I have like like I said before, I've had a lot of theology. 
training, uh, well, theological training, I would say, uh, that has been really, really bad. And I'm learning or unlearning a lot of that now. So uh, I just want some clarification on it. So and and I also want to do it for the people that are listening and watching, you know, because there have been a lot of people who just have learned so many different types of things. And, you know, eschatology is a very complicated thing. I'm learning that people have different uh, feelings and different ideas and uh, all types of things that are just weird. (laughs) I mean, that's the, that's the only thing I can say is weird. And I want to be very, I wanted to be balanced too, because I'm not this type of guy who's like, yeah, the the pendulum swing. And, you know, it's like, I don't want to be the type of guy that's like, that's that's like, well, the world is going to end and and this is horrible, but I do want to have a good understanding of it. So we'll talk about that (laughs) on a different podcast. But, you know, because I don't want to do that. Any final thoughts you want to give? Eschatology is one of the ones where the pendulum swings the most. Oh, yeah, you're right. It does. It does. So you have guys who are, I mean, I've heard it. I've heard pastors who I know who are saying that this is this is the beginning of the end and the, the end of the world is happening. And, and uh, you know, quoting scripture saying this is Daniel's 70th week and these are, you know, the, the, the trumpet judgments. And I'm just like, this is nuts. That is, mm-hmm. that is not what we're seeing at all. And, uh, but then you have other guys who don't even want to talk about eschatology and act like it's not even in the Bible. Hmm. Act like, you know, Jesus never uh, preached whole sermons. I mean, think about it. He preached whole sermons about the fact that he was going to return and what it was going to be like. Right. And so, so again, you, you, you got to strike the balance. Mm-hmm. There has to be a biblical balance. And and uh, and that's what we strive for. And uh, eschatology is, I'll be the first to say, is is one of the most complex doctrines in the Bible. And um, because it's still yet to happen, we have the beauty of looking back on so many doctrines because they have happened. But this is one of the ones um, that we look forward and we're not given as much clarity as so many people want to believe. We're given clarity on a lot of things, but there's a lot we're not given clarity on because the point isn't for us to be able to know the day or the time or even to be able to put our finger on it and say this is it the point is really clear and this is crystal clear and this gets lost so much and i don't understand why because the bible is crystal clear that eschatology is for the purpose of of personal holiness mm-hmm. you know the lord is coming and the lord is coming soon and he is then that should drive you to personal purity that's Peter's point in Second Peter chapter 3, and that has never stopped. It was that way with Paul. That's why he said we're closer to salvation today than we were yesterday. That was Paul. Well, how much more today? Mm-hmm. And his point is so we should uh, mortify the flesh and how much more today. But most people that talk about eschatology do not talk about it in the light of holiness. They talk about it in the light of some sort of esoteric knowledge to try to turn over a rock and say jesus is here he is here's the here's the secret hidden deal you didn't know about he's coming back in 2022 or whatever and it's 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 really uh it's really not helpful yeah yeah so we're gonna uh just just whet the appetite of people right now and just say hey this is what we're gonna talk about uh coming up but yeah that's a that's a good i appreciate that that's a good uh little little teaser for a future episode so Thanks a lot, Pastor Matt, for uh, talking and uh, being with me today. And uh, thank you all for listening as well. And now here is the gospel of Jesus Christ.
This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The biblical gospel starts with God. Out of nothing, God made everything, including you and me, to bring himself much pleasure. His purpose for us as humanity was to love, obey, and enjoy him perfectly. Instead of this, man has sinned against our loving creator and acted in rebellion. Since God is good and just, he must punish sin that deserves eternal, conscious punishment under God's wrath in hell. But God, being merciful, loving, and gracious, had a plan to punish sin, and so be a just judge, and yet forgive sinners, and so display mercy, by sending his own Son, Jesus Christ, the co-equal and co-eternal Son of God, to take on human flesh, fulfilling his perfect requirements in the place of sinners, loving, obeying, and enjoying him perfectly. Furthermore, Jesus bore the full wrath of God upon the cross, and he satisfied the eternal anger of God, standing in a place of sinners, though he was himself perfectly sinless. God showed his acceptance of Christ's sacrifice by raising Jesus from the dead after three days in the grave. Now Jesus commands everyone, everywhere, to repent, turn from their sin, and believe, trust in him. This is the glorious transaction. God then charges Christ's perfection to the sinner and no longer views him as an enemy, but instead an adopted son and daughters covered in the perfect righteousness of his son. We can now have peace with God and have eternal life with him forever. It's true for every person in every culture, in every place, in every language through all time. So our response to this good news is repentance and faith. Dear hearer, Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Turn from your sins. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this day, be reconciled to God. Thank you for tuning in today. Please subscribe to the podcast and send in your questions to thetruthtalkspodcast at gmail.com. Visit our Instagram and Twitter at the Truth Talks Podcast, And visit our website at bellcroftbiblechurch.org. Delighting in the word that we might walk in the truth. A ministry of Bellcroft Bible Church.